0: Welcome to the God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about the God Solution at godsolutionshow.com.
1: Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. Welcome to the God Solution Show where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm so glad that you're back with us again this week. Well, last week we began the interview with Dr. Fuz Rana of Reasons to Believe. This week we'll be continuing with the second half of that interview. I'm so glad that you're tuned in. Go to godsolutionshow.com to get last week's interview if you missed it, or if you just want to hear it again, and all of our other shows as well while you're there. Well, if you missed last week, you probably are wondering who Dr. Rana is. If you haven't heard about him before, he is the Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe. He holds a Ph.D. in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. He's the author of several groundbreaking books, including The Cells Design and Creating Life in the lab. He's also co-authored Origins of Life, Who Was Adam, and What Darwin Didn't Know with Dr. Hugh Ross, who was also on the show a while back. Please visit reasons.org for more information about Dr. Rana and reasons to believe as a ministry. And click on the microphone while you're there for a free copy of Dr. Fuzz Rana's testimony. Well, anyway, let's get right back to the second part of the interview. We're picking up here talking about how, in his words, you can't win from an evolutionary standpoint. I agree with that statement. I'm going to be asking him a little bit about Dr. Behe's research and that very issue of how you can't win from an evolutionary standpoint. So here we pick up with the second part of our two-part interview with Dr. Rana. Dr. Behe, another biochemist, kind of argues the same thing in his book, The Edge of Evolution, maybe from a different perspective. He actually tries to quantify the capacity of Darwinian processes. And he says that we couldn't even get one new protein-protein interaction. And he's talking about the AIDS virus and malaria and all this, and actually quantifying the capacity of this mechanism. What does that mean for the theory of evolution? We can't even get one new protein-protein interaction?
0: Yeah, and you know, again, I think uh, what Michael Behe does in the Edge of Evolution really is, is a sound approach to characterizing, again, just what is the capacity of mutations to create uh, new biochemical functions. And, again, you know, uh, what he's showing is, you know, to, to try to map out a stepwise process and go from, you know, one function to another function is just beyond the capability of the resources that you have. And, you know, uh, you know I agree with, with what he is, you know, with his conclusion there. And, again, the only way I've seen evolutionary biologists avoid that is, again, to appeal to this idea of historical contingency. But as I, I pointed out, that that doesn't really solve the problem. It just, it just essentially takes one set of problems and exchanges them for another set.
1: And now, even that theory, if I'm not mistaken, it doesn't give us an explanation for how something new could be developed, correct? I've never seen a mutation or even heard of anyone observing a mutation that increases... The genetic information with new information. I mean, we see sequences copied, doubled, maybe things like that, but we don't see new information. Correct?
0: That's something that I've I've heard a number of you know, apologists with the scientific background make as a claim, and I'm a, a little reluctant, frankly, to go down that path simply because um, I think it me I think. Um, that, that argument depends upon what exactly do you mean when you, when you use the term information in a, in a biological context. And there's a number of different ways in which you can, you can think about information. And so depending upon how you define information, uh, you could make an argument that you know mutational events can create new information in, in biological systems. But in a sense, the type of information that you're creating is kind of analogous to, to having the word cat in randomly replacing letters. And occasionally you might produce a word like bat or car, you know, or, or something like that. Uh, so you, you are generating, you could argue, new information by randomly varying letters. Uh, again, if you start with the word cat. Uh, but the, the point would be that you're not doing anything substantial in terms of increasing the complexity of the system, uh, which is what you would require in order to have um, you know, one major group you know give rise to another major group. I think evolutionary mechanisms are very good at, at adapting systems to changing environments uh, by taking a core design and varying it in response to changing environments. We would refer to something like that as microevolution. Uh, And we see, you know, really good evidence for microevolution, and I think that kind of mutational mechanism could adequately account for variations around the core design that would be necessary for organisms to adapt to their environment. But I don't think that that mechanism is sufficient to explain how one design could be converted into another, another, you know, fundamentally different design. Um, And so... I think that, to me, is really where the mechanism uh, fails.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think Dr. Behe's analogy is the cell can burn a bridge to protect itself from intruders, but it couldn't build a new bridge, so to say. It could adapt something old, but it can't create something new. Yes. So what do you think of the supposed genetic evidence for common descent? Doesn't this assume that junk DNA is actually junk DNA, something that current research is refuting?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And you know, uh, you know, the, the the if you pressed an evolutionary biologist to ask and, and ask them what was the most compelling evidence for the idea of common descent, it would be shared genetic features that you see in genomes of, of different creatures that would naturally group together. Uh, and you know, what's being presupposed here though is that evolution actually is the way to explain the history of life. Because if evolution is the way to explain the history of life, then shared features would reflect descent with modification from a common ancestor. But it's interesting because prior to Darwin, uh, you had scientists like Richard Owen who argued that shared features observed in organisms reflected an archetypical design that existed in the mind of a creator. And when Darwin came along, he replaced the archetypical design with a common ancestor, Uh, and and it it was just simply a different way to interpret shared features that Darwin proposed. uh, That was mechanistic in orientation, whereas Owen was explaining those shared features in kind of a design-friendly framework. Well, you could, but but the fact of the matter is, nobody disproved Owen's approach. It was just simply abandoned at the time in favor of Darwin's theory, and so you know what I like to do is, is, you know, apply that principle to the the genetic comparisons that are being made today, and ask the question: Could there be genetic archetypes that we would that could account for those shared features as opposed to an evolutionary common, you know, evolutionary speaking, common ancestor? Uh, And uh, you know when you do look at shared features in the genome, if those features are functional, then you could argue that that reflects, again, common design, not common descent. Now, the argument against that would be the, this claim that there's junk DNA that exists in the genomes of creatures that, and that junk DNA is shared. And of course, well, why would a creator introduce junk sequences and corresponding locations in genomes of creatures? that? The, that evolution is the best explanation. But the good news is that virtually every class of, of junk DNA has had function ascribed to it in recent years. And in fact, with the ENCODE project, we now have uh, evidence that at minimum 80% of the human genome consists of functional sequences, and perhaps you could even argue that that number is even closer to 100%. And, and so in light of that, I, I think the case for common descent evaporates, and you, you are much in a much better position to look at that data as evidence for common design. In fact, um, there are a number of evolutionary biologists who have vehemently complained about the ENCODE project results, saying that if the ENCODE project results are true, then the evolutionary paradigm cannot be true and that, that the ENCODE project results are absurd in an evolutionary context. Uh, and, and so what they're doing is they're arguing that we have to reject the ENCODE project results, <laughs> that they cannot be correct, because if they are, evolution is, again, invalid. And this is really rather interesting, because now what you're seeing happening is that evolutionary biologists are using the theory to determine what data is admissible as opposed to using the data to determine what theories are admissible and and so it's showing that in a sense adherence to the evolutionary paradigm goes is not a scientific commitment it's it's probably a philosophical commitment more so than anything else
1: it's been called the only game in town they have to go that route if they refuse to believe that that there could be a creator And just from a philosophical perspective, this is begging the question, right? This is assuming their own presupposition. They start with evolution. Oh, gosh, the evidence points the other direction. Toss out the evidence. It's probably not a good way. I mean, when I took chemistry, I would have failed every class if I did that. You? Yeah, I would have, too.
0: And, you know, it's just astounding to me when you see um, those kind of arguments being made. You know, uh, it's. Again, it's, you know, it. in uh, and, and fact, I've even seen uh, other evolutionary biologists, or at least other biologists who are not necessarily friendly to the Christian faith, actually calling out those types of critics, saying that the motivation seems to be something other than scientific in nature when they're making those kind of assertions. So there are scientists who are... Uh, again, biologists that are, are uncomfortable with those kind of critiques, uh, but but even even though they are still very much adherents to the evolutionary framework.
1: Wow. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution Show. Find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Okay, so we've talked about some of the problems for evolution. Now, we all know that problems with evolution doesn't mean that the Christian worldview is correct. So let's kind of switch gears here. What are a couple of the strongest arguments for creation?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I'll stick with the life sciences, but, uh, you know, for me, I think uh, when it comes to uh, human origins, you know, we, we've as we mentioned earlier, we've got evidence that there was a, a mitochondrial Eve and a Y-chromosome atom. That seems to, I think, lend credence to the biblical account of human origins, Uh, we also have um, emerging data in anthropology for something called human exceptionalism. And and this is something that I'm particularly excited about. Uh, But, uh, you know, going back to Darwin in his book, The Descent of Man, the claim was that human beings only differ in degree, not kind, from other creatures, That, that we, in effect, are glorified apes. Uh, that were just a little bit more of the same with respect to the capacity that that the great apes possess. And, of course, that notion strikes at at a very important idea in Christianity that human beings are made in God's image. Uh, But yet, in recent years, there's this concept that's emerging uh, called human exceptionalism, where a growing number of primatologists and anthropologists who are not Christians are arguing that human beings really are distinct from all other creatures, that we are exceptional, and that, that what makes us exceptional is our capacity for something called symbolism. That human beings seem to be unique, not only compared to the great apes, but even compared to creatures like Neanderthals and Homo erectus, that we appear to be unique in our ability to represent the world using symbols. And, and by and that we can manipulate those symbols in an infinite number of ways to create alternate possibilities. And and that symbolism manifests itself in the form of spoken and written language, art, music, even body ornamentation. These are all manifestations of symbolism, and it's only human beings that are capable of doing that. None of the great apes can do that. We don't see any evidence that this is a behavior that uh, is something observed even for Neanderthals and Homo erectus. And so again, people are arguing are beginning to argue that humans are exceptional. And I would argue that symbolism could be aligned with uh, the, the concept of the image of God. So there's another piece of evidence from human origins that substantiates the, the biblical account of human origins. But but now let's move back and, and start looking at the history of life. Um, one of the things I find absolutely fascinating is that when we look at the fossil record, for example, it tells us that every time there is biological innovation happening in the history of life, it happens explosively. And, and in my mind, that explosivity you know, those explosive innovations uh, would be the, a signature for a creator's involvement. Mm-hmm. And the queen mother of all explosive innovations would be something called the Cambrian Explosion, where, you know, roughly 540 million years ago, uh, virtually every animal phyla that we are familiar with today shows up in a geological instant. And this is a, an event that defies an evolutionary explanation, but moreover, it, um, you know, it is kind of reminiscent, in my mind, of, of the fifth day of creation, where God commands the waters to teem with life because the animals that appear in the Cambrian Explosion are uh, basically the types of animals, uh, or sorry, are marine animals and the the types of animals that would be mentioned in the fifth day of creation in the Genesis 1 account. So, you know, that's another piece of evidence, I think, that positively supports creation. And then finally, one of the things that I find mind-blowing as a biochemist and I talk about this in my book, uh, The Cell's Design, is that the the, the hallmark characteristics of biochemical systems are identical to human designs. And so we see protein complexes in the cell that are motors and machines that are identical to the types of motors and machines that we would build. The cell's machinery that manipulates DNA is literally functioning like a computer system functions. Uh, And in... Those similarities in design, in my mind, suggest the work of a mind uh, and kind of reinvigorate the old watchmaker argument of William Paley, who argued that a watch requires a watchmaker, therefore, life must require a divine watchmaker because Paley argued that biological systems and a watch have these shared properties. Well, now that we're seeing those same kinds of analogies in biochemical systems with respect to human designs we can extend the watchmaker argument to the the features of the cell now what's provocative to me about the watchmaker argument is that human designs are similar to designs that we see in biochemistry well why would that be well one way to explain that is that uh, there is a resonance between that the mind of, of the divine watchmaker and the human mind that is, uh, the watchmaker argument lends itself to making a case for human beings bearing God's image, mm-hmm. or it finds explanation in the idea that we bear God's image. Because if we bear God's image, then we are going to function as mini creators, and if we're producing the same types of things that we see inside, or in the inside the cell, as part of our engineering efforts, uh, then it means that. Uh, or you could explain that as, uh, with the idea that we are, again, creatures that, that uh, bear the imago dei, and that we are, in effect, wired in such a way to do that which the Creator has already done.
1: It's just fascinating. It's fascinating. And I think we could go on and on talking about these evidences for Creator. And, you know, in Romans 1, God tells us that His invisible attributes are clearly displayed in nature. And I know that's referring more than to just biological design. You know, we see all the features with the beginning of the universe and how that points to an omnipresent and all-powerful and omniscient God and all these things. But what you just said tells me, and I know there's more, but those are fascinating evidences for God's creation of man in his own image. It's just incredible. So. In your opinion, what have been some mistakes that creationists have made in presenting their arguments? Because as I listen to you, you sound very coherent, logical, educated, and scientific. Sometimes creationists don't come across that way. What have been some of the mistakes that creationists have made?
0: Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, um, and, and I'll stick to the, the biological arena, uh, you know, as I make these comments. Because that's my area of expertise. I think one mistake that I oftentimes see creationists make is to uh, present a, a simplified, um, in some in some instances, a straw man presentation of evolutionary theory. Um, you know, I, I you know, uh, and so I think one of the things that it's very important that we all do is is spend time really making sure that we're reading the best and latest ideas that are part of the evolutionary framework. Because evolutionary theory has progressed, and the way in which people envision the evolutionary process transpiring today is very different than it was 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. So I think it's very important that we make sure that we're not presenting straw man arguments when we critique evolution Uh, but rather that we're critiquing it based on, you know, a cutting-edge understanding of what evolutionary biologists are claiming. And there are many, many problems that we can point to with the evolutionary paradigm that are legitimate problems, and we just want to make sure that we're pointing out legitimate problems, not problems that, uh, again, are not part of the current-day construct of evolutionary theory, because that doesn't get us very far more engaging, you know, non-christians who have a strong scientific background and kind of in conjunction with that i also try to encourage christians to, when they do apologetics in the biological arena is to make a positive case for creation as opposed to focusing on critiquing evolution it's it's all well and good to critique evolution but a lot of times i see apologists stop there and think, well, if I can show evolution isn't true, then I've made my case for design. I think it's important that we do critique evolution, but I think it's even more important that we spend most of our effort arguing for why we think the biblical accounts of creation are valid, why we think that biology shows us evidence that a creator indeed does exist. So in other words, let's make a positive case for why we are creationist as opposed to uh, maybe critiquing evolution and arguing why we're not evolutionist, uh, if that makes any sense.
1: Absolutely. it's great advice. Now, a lot of people might just throw this out there and say, it doesn't even really matter. I've heard Christians say that. What does human origins have to do with everyday stuff that we care about, like the right to life, sanctity of marriage, etc.?
0: Well, you know, it, it has everything to do with it uh, because... Um, You know, at the end of the day, how we think about origins, and I think specifically about human origins, has profound implications on our day-to-day decision-making. You know, if you think that you're the product of an evolutionary history where it's an unguided process that has produced human beings, again, and and that we are just simply an accident of a, 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 a mindless process, And there really is no meaning or purpose to human existence at the end of the day. And that, um, you know, we are, again, not special. We're just among countless uh, numbers of species that have existed on Earth with no special distinction whatsoever. So if that's the view that you have, then the way in which you think about the value of your life and the meaning of your life and the value of other people's life is going to be rather dismal. Uh, but on the other hand, if you think that human beings truly are made in God's image and that we have inherent worth and dignity, you're going to view your life in in very different terms than, I think, uh, and you're going to view other people's lives in very different terms. And so I think issues relating to you know, pro-life, euthanasia, uh, issues relating to how do we define marriage as a society, as a culture, you know, decisions that we make in terms of what we do with our bodies and, and how we live our life in terms of our you know, sexuality ultimately trace back to what we think about our origins. Uh, and so, you know, this is really, um, I think, a, a, an important question that ext- extends far beyond just simply, you know, uh, complex apologetic arguments that we might make with, you know, people that need intellectual evidence. For, the, for, you know, in order for them to embrace Christianity, um, this is really something that impacts uh, our day to day decision making, whether we realize it or not.
1: Well, it's been a great interview, and I'm just excited that you've been on and thankful for all that you've shared and thankful for all that you're doing. Before we close this out, just as we wrap up, would there be any last comments that you'd like to share? Maybe one last takeaway?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think. Um, you know, to be a little self-serving here, uh, you know, there's just a lot of information about, you know, uh, that you need to master to do science, you know, to use science to defend the faith and to use science to share the gospel. And so I would really encourage people not to get overwhelmed uh, by an interview like this, but realize that if they work at this methodically, they can master the concepts, even if they're not really adept scientifically, they can at least master the concepts and the principles in such a way that they can effectively share their faith and, and defend their faith with people who are scientifically minded. And, you know, if people want to, to get, you know, uh, access to resources that will help them, I would recommend that they go to our website, uh, you know, at reasons.org, uh, because we have a lot of articles and podcasts and videos that are accessible for no cost for people. And, of course, we also have other resources that we would make available, you know, books and and, and DVDs and things like that, that people would have the opportunity to purchase on our website. Uh, But we really, you know, want people to take the effort to train themselves so they can begin to have, you know, meaningful conversations with people that are scientifically minded. And, by the way, for people that are listening to this program, if they go to our website there's a microphone button if they click on that and give us uh, just a little bit of information we will send uh, either an mp3 or a cd copy of my testimony about how i came to faith in christ and the role that science and scripture played in my conversion to christianity and of course people can listen to that and then pass that on to other people that they think might need to hear a message like that
1: Well, Dr. Rana, it's been a wonderful interview. Thank you so much for coming on The God Solution Show.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I'm I'm honored that you would think of me.
1: Hey, well, thanks so much, and have a great afternoon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Fuzz Rana. Again, you can go to reasons.org to find out more about Dr. Rana, and while you're there, click the microphone and get a free copy of his testimony. Also, definitely pick up some of his books. Pick up The Cell's Design, Creating Life in the Lab, Who Was Adam, What Darwin Didn't Know, and The Origins of Life. All those are good books that you could pick up and grow in apologetics. I hope that you'll check those out. Well, what Dr. Rana talked about today really leads us to the reality that God does exist, that evolution is not true. And we can go even further than that and know with certainty that Jesus Christ is the only hope for mankind. If you've never come to a point of putting your faith in Christ, I would encourage you to do that this very morning. To say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I pray that you'd come into my life and be my Savior and Lord, that you'd make me the kind of person that you want me to be. The Bible says if you genuinely and honestly put your faith and trust in Christ alone, you'll be adopted into his family, that you can look forward to a life of meaning and purpose with him on this planet, and an eternity with Him in heaven. I hope you'll take that step if you haven't already. And if you have taken that step, I hope that you'll grow in your walk with God and share your faith with your friends. And I hope that this show is equipping you with evidence to share with your non-Christian friends and family, and even people that you encounter on a weekly basis that maybe you've never met before. We're in the middle of a dying and dark world that desperately needs to know the hope that we have. So I hope you get to share that hope with those around you this week. Go to godsolutionshow.com to get all of our past shows, to find a list of local churches that you could visit, to leave comments, and so much more. And as we close out the show, I'll leave you with what I always share at the end of the show, but I believe it with all my heart. And that's that an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. We'll see you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution with Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast
0: and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of the God Solution.